Hello and welcome to our series of podcasts on mental health in the community, brought to you by the Mental Health Foundation and the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust. What we're trying to do is share new ideas from around the world, addressing some of today's most pressing mental health challenges. I'll be talking to a number of Churchill Fellows who, between 2016 and 2019, were funded to visit some of the world's best projects in this field and to bring fresh approaches for the UK. Our theme today is creativity and innovation, how the arts in their broadest sense and in all their diversity can be used in the service of good mental health. Later on in the episode, I'll be speaking to Alison O'Connor, theatre practitioner and counsellor and co-founder of the organisation Relive. But first, I'm joined by Dr Kat Taylor, Arts and Mental Health Innovation Programme Manager at Greater Manchester's iThrive. First of all, Kat, what role do, and indeed should, the arts play in the service of mental health? I think the answer to that is that there's multiple roles on different levels and that's what makes them so important really. So there's roles for them at an individual level um, in terms of maybe reflection and absorption and things that we know support mental health. There's also roles for the individual in terms of their relationships and connecting to other people. Um, There's lots of evidence that shows that healing mechanisms in the body, for example, inflammation and lowering blood pressure, lots of physical aspects to the body that can be supported by engaging in the arts. And then lastly, there's a role for public health messages and spreading um, positive health behaviours. So that's the visual arts, it might be sculpture, it might be design, it might be... You're not expecting everybody to be Picasso or David Hockney, are you? (laughs) I know that's the other thing. um, There's lots of possibilities within the arts. They're very versatile, so whether you're into the visual arts and painting and sculpture, or whether you're into something more performative like dance uh, dance or singing... There's something for everybody in the arts, and that's part of the power of them as well. And how do you get people together? Do you, as it were, suggest they come together and do this? Suggest is a good word, yeah. So we would suggest to people um, that this is one of the options that you might want to consider as something that could support your well-being. Um, So, for example, several years ago, where my journey really started was with a project called Dementia and Imagination. And in this project, we approached care homes and other care settings and asked staff and patients and families would you be interested would you like to try some arts-led interventions and a lot of people were maybe reluctant or think that it's not for them because they're no Picasso or they're no David Hockney Um, but usually if people are willing to give it a go there's usually a hook that somehow people can engage Um, and so we deliver art sessions and invite people to come up and make them welcome. And presumably you have to have trained people. The quality of both the materials you use and the teachers or the therapists or the practitioners, artists for goodness sake, have to be good quality. Yeah, so quality is essential, as is kind of mutual understanding between all the stakeholders. So it's really important to prepare people to, for example, for clinical staff to work in an arts-led way because it might be quite different to what they're used to. They might have some expectations that... um, would be useful to explore beforehand and yes the quality of materials the quality of the leadership is critical really for a successful intervention okay well let's look at your travels as it were and as a Churchill fellow you went to Finland New York and California uh, if we start in Finland you said that support for the arts and culture and health at a structural level was important presumably that it's got the backing of government local authority or the equivalent and that they're committed to it 
Yeah, that's right. So in Finland, one of the reasons I went to Finland was because they're running a f- they were running a five-year government key project, um, which was all about embedding the arts into health and social care. And it's between two different ministries, so health, social care, education. Um, and the aim of the project was to establish on a national level policies, recommendations and practice that give more people in Finland access to culture and the arts as a route to supporting well-being. And that, you would say, is a model that Britain's not learned from yet, properly? I would say that there's patches of it, and I think that it's been happening in Britain for a long, long time. You know, arts and health is is an old field. I mean, it's ancient, but in modern times, we've had Arts for Health at Manchester Met for 30 years. Lyme Arts at the Children's Hospital has been there since the 70s. I think this kind of more formalising of the structures and and the pathways, if you like, to foster those partnerships between different sectors... Maybe that's something that's just getting new attention now. It was interesting that, that what you found, that terminology was significant. So near Helsinki, there was what was once called a mental asylum, quote-unquote, and it's now a wellness centre. That makes a difference, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think, yes, language is powerful. It shapes narratives about what we understand. Um, it contributes towards sort of othering of people who may have lived experience of mental health issues. And I think making it a wellness centre, and this was deliberate according to the director, makes it more inclusive. It makes people who are coming there connect with people that they might not have otherwise connected with. So if those Finnish people that thought they were going into an asylum now go into a wellness centre, what on a day-to-day level would they see? The wellness centre kind of blew me away, actually. There's all sorts there. So you go in, it smells of cinnamon because people are baking in there. There's an allotment. There's um, recording studios, massage rooms, therapy rooms. Um, There was a talk on the role of the arts for dementia when I was there. Um, There's kind of a bit of everything. And the corridors themselves are, they double as exhibition spaces. And presumably not a medication in sight? I wouldn't know about that, actually, if there was medication there or not. I, there was definitely sort of family therapy rooms and things, but it's possible that people offering medicine are operating out of them, but I don't know. And um, maybe that's, that would be part of the whole offer because there is a role for medication. Um, it's just how often that is kind of drawn upon, really. But, of course, if you get it right, you can reduce medication and sometimes do away with it altogether. Yeah, and there's research that shows that some of the effects following, for example, singing for postnatal depression. So Daisy Fancourt, who's um, written a book, Arts and Health, um, she's a UK-based researcher, and Daisy's shown in randomised controlled trials that women who engage in singing groups with babies tend to recover faster than, than women who have taken antidepressants. And obviously, one of the main boons for using the arts as an intervention is that there's no harmful side effects, as you can sometimes find with medicine use. Well, that brings us rather neatly to this whole concept of the baby dance hour. What's that and how did it improve things? Baby Dance Hour is a dance group for mothers and babies and I think the feature of this one that I write about is that it takes place within a care home for older adults living with dementia. So the dance class with the music and the drumming happens in the middle of the room and the older adults sit around the edge of the room and can either sort of take part and drum along or just simply watch. And yeah, some of the effects of that is that it tends to soothe people and the manager of the care home shared with me that she actually chooses people who are usually the most agitated because in her experience this sort of activity really helps to provide a tranquil environment without the use of a med- need for medication. But I mean when you try to explain that to 
people in authority, people with money, to make it happen. Do you ever find that they think, well, this is, this is a bit fluffy around the edges. Is this going to work? Aren't we just wasting our resources? I have heard the word fluffy. I've also um, had people imagine it as, as alternative. Um, and I think that the thought that music and dance and even drama is alternative bears a bit of unpicking, really, because obviously we've been doing this for tens of thousands of years. The, these are the traditional routes to mental health. And recent research is looking at more hard-come outcomes, so things like medication use, things like changes in mood, engagement with services is a big one because if we know if we can get more people into services that the outcomes will improve because yeah i mean arts change our mood we know from reading books seeing films watching plays we feel differently at the end of it yeah and i think emotional regulation is is how we would talk about it in our uh, clinical services um feel the feels is one of the way that the children like to talk about it because emotional regulation doesn't sound great does it so feel the feels is how the kids that i work with in a singing group they call they like to call it feel the feels and um they are really on board with this idea that expression of feelings and and working through them helps to process them and sure music and the arts is a great way towards that what about this notion of diagnosis free zones what do you mean by that so in uvascular in finland i went to an example of this it's um it was an example of clubhouse international and they exist, exist around the world. And the idea of having a diagnosis-free zone is that you are not, um, you're not defined by your label that you might have attracted according to your presentation. And I think that for some people, having such a label can be helpful, but for many people, it's not very helpful. And being able to be free of that can be quite empowering and help people to connect to each other on a more personal level as opposed to through a diagnosis. Clubhouse International, they run a lot of peer models, so peer-to-peer, and obviously I think when you hear advice or direction or guidance from someone who's maybe been there, that carries a bit more weight for some people. Um, So we run a parent support group in in CAMS, and the parents say there really is no substitute for being with other people who know what what you're going through. And of course, if it works, it saves money in the end. If exactly. you're having to persuade people, that's a good uh, reason to quote. Exactly. If you take an example of perioperative medicine, so people being prepared for surgery, there's really interesting research that shows that music can be delivered to a patient before surgery, and that can help to calm them and settle them so that they need less medical intervention, really. And obviously, like you say, that can save money in the long run and be safer for the patient. Are people on board? I mean, do you find that clinicians are backing it or do they think that really it's doing them out of a job? Well the World Health Organization published a report on this in November um, what is the role of the, what is the evidence for the role of the arts in healthcare and that that document outlines about th- more than 3,000 studies looking at more clinical outcomes and the evidence is, is clear and growing that there really is a role for this kind of these kinds of interventions and that they can save us money and are effective. Let's look at your experience now in New York, because there be similarities, but one assumes huge differences in terms of crime and homelessness and the general sort of picture. Finland's a much smaller, more homogenous population. What was the picture in New York like? So the picture in New York is obviously vast, diverse, chaotic, magical you know new york is not a place that you can go and try and get the picture i don't think you just need to get little bits of it but as you say it's a very different place to finland and that was one of the reasons why i wanted to travel there because 
Finland is maybe kind of known for its progressive policies, but has a much more uniform population to deal with. So I went to New York for comparison and to think about how to work this in a more inner city, diverse environment. And were the comparisons favourable? Were you finding equally radical, but in the end, perhaps low-tech and effective solutions there? I think a bit of both, really. I think the most useful meeting that I possibly had in New York was with a woman at NYU, at New York University, a professor in mental health, and she, her role is to link between the research groups and the city, uh, the city, so the policy makers, so that the findings from research is kind of accelerated into how the city is managed immediately, rather than having to publish in journals and having to broker relationships, they're already there, and so the, the city can learn from the research almost immediately. In terms of low-tech or maybe more ground-level interventions or options, one of the places I went to is called LAND, which stands for League Artists Natural Design. This is located in Brooklyn, and it's a public gallery that you can walk in off the street, a studio and a gallery. And there, every day, there's about 15 or 16 young adults with learning disabilities who are trained and skilled in lots of different arts. So, for example, there was a lady there who made um, ceramics, and I went to an, a book launch of a young man who combined his love of reggae and West Indian food into a really vibrant book, which was marketed by the Whitney Museum in New York and was exhibited in Manhattan. And this is one example of how these kind of options can offer people uh, mastery, purpose, belonging, these you know key ingredients of mental health, but also influencing the public perception of what these people can and can't do. Let's take a, a bit of a dramatic shift now and focus on one specific area. What about the issue of art in prisons? You went to Rikers Island. I mean, why is that a specialist area and why do you think it needs more exploration? What's being done there that helps things? It felt almost inauthentic to go and look at mental health and not think about the prison system because a lot of people who end up in the prison system arguably are the same sorts of populations that we might see in, in clinical settings. And so I went to find out how the arts can support well-being in prisons. The project that I went to look at was called The Kite, which is a spoken word magazine. And the premise of this is that it gives people in prison a voice. It gives people a way to express themselves. And a lot of these people might have been through traumatic experiences. So the arts or poetry, which was the medium we used in Rikers Island, helps people to articulate maybe some distress, explore some of the trauma in quite a safer way because you've got other models and things to work with. And the other thing that was really noticeable to me was the level of interaction and the difference in the interaction between the people who were in prison and the prison officers because using art as a tool tends to facilitate communication at a more genuine level. Because, I mean, why should it be bold, do you think? Because know, people yeah. listening to this exactly. might, might think, well, it's so obvious. Why can't we do more of it? It might just need paint and paper, poetry, swapping stories, telling stories, playing music. It should be straightforward, shouldn't it? Why is it not, do you think? I think because people are looking for a fix, maybe, and, and kind of... Um, the pharmaceutical company is very skilled at delivering marketing tools and messages about how, say, for example, an antidepressant or an antipsychotic can deliver that effect. Um, I think there's probably some public health messages and gaps between what people think mental health is and 
some more sort of contemporary understandings, which, as I said, look at a person in context and think about social determinants as well. I mean, you're a great ambassador for this, and presumably all the people you work, whether professionals or volunteers or people themselves with a mental health issue, um, but are people listening to you? Are you getting through to the people that can, as you put it, at a structural level, make a difference? So in Manchester, we have this new arts and mental health innovation programme, and that's at a strategic level, and we have a number of deliverables, one of which is to develop a evaluation framework. Um, this comes with a caveat, really, which is that you can't really measure all these things, And but the idea is that we offer a shared language that's been developed between people like myself and our team, Arts Council England, some of the major theatres and galleries in Manchester, and we've got mental health researchers, and this team is going to deliver a means for us to gather some data, which includes qualitative data and some creative data as well, to be able to demonstrate to commissioners that this is a viable option. So all very positive for the minute. Watch this space. Kat Taylor, thanks for joining us. Now, I want to explore the role of theatre now and the performing arts in more detail. Who better to tell us than a theatre practitioner, mental health counsellor from Wales and co-founder of the charity Relive, Alison O'Connor. Alison, most people's experience of theatre is a night out at a show, a ticket for the RSC or the mousetrap in the West End. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? There is. There is. Um, I've always been, um, I guess, more interested in what theatre can do for us. Um, I also love going to see a good show and being entertained by theatre. But um, personally, you know, I studied drama in my late teens, early 20s. But from the off, I was interested in theatre's potential to help people to make changes, to gain deeper insight, to for transformation, really. So not just theatre as entertainment, theatre as therapy in this case. In a way, yeah, I guess therapy maybe with a small T. Um, so uh, one of my kind of formative experiences really as a practitioner was I worked in, in Romania uh, in an orphanage there um, using theatre and play and actually started to realise its potential for helping people to reawaken, to recover, um, and most of my career has been using theatre in that way. Well, yeah. one of the ways you helped other people recover was when you were offered this travel fellowship to study how creative arts are supporting veterans, yes. veterans of conflicts, Afghanistan, Bosnia, Northern Ireland. Uh, tell me a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. If I rewind a little bit, so I, in 2006, myself and my, my friend and colleague Karen Diamond set up an organisation called Relive, which uh, uses or develops a form of life story theatre. So basically we work with non-actors, with ordinary people, um, and use theatre as a, as a medium, as a vehicle for people to reflect on their life experiences. Um, those experiences are then shared with an audience in a professional theatre. So we'd been doing this work for several years and worked with people um, in end-of-life care, uh, people in hospice settings, people affected by all kinds of mental health conditions. And then we just, we became really interested in, in, the, in working with trauma um, particularly we were aware living in you know being based in South Wales lots of stories in the media about veterans young veterans facing mental health problems it was the the anniversary of the Falklands and there was lots of publicity about you know the unmet needs then so we 
We had an idea. We approached um, NHS Veterans Wales and said, look, this is our idea. What do you think? Would you be interested in working with us on this? Um, and through that, we developed a small project. We worked with a group of eight veterans and their family members from a range of conflicts to reflect on their experiences in the military and also probably most you know, importantly, coming home from the military. I mean, you mentioned their unmet needs. Yes. What, what were these? I mean, how in practice were their mental health yeah. difficulties um, manifesting themselves? Um, they were enormous. Uh, and this really was um, a turning point for us as an organisation, for me as a person, because it felt like we had stumbled on something which was actually really horrible to stumble on but once we knew it we couldn't unknow it because what we what we discovered was the levels of depression anxiety traumatic stress were rife um, across the veteran community and um, that the, the knock-on effect the ripple effect to families was huge and that these were stories that just weren't being told um, you know I am aware, and, and I know this is factually true, that the majority of veterans do make a successful transition home, and that's great. But the minority who don't are, are really struggling. So some of them might go to hospitals, clinics, talk to their friends, possibly even go to the pub. What did you two do that was different to help them? Um, so we... I think that the most important thing that we did was we we offered them a, a container. We created a, a safe space or as safe as possible for, for, for the participants. Um, there, and there was, there was a, a recognition that this was their opportunity to reflect on their experiences, to share what they wanted to share, and then to have really um, a, a really collaborative role in shaping and editing this final performance, which was then shared with an audience. And one of those traumatic elements is this concept of moral injury. Yes. Talk me through that, which, as you say, is only just beginning to be recognised. Absolutely. I mean, when I was awarded the fellowship and went to America, and I also went briefly to Bosnia to, a, to an event there which looked at traumatic uh, memories and recovery, what I imagined I was going to be exploring and discovering was um, people living with PTSD and depression and anxiety. But really, my knowledge and understanding up to that point was that PTSD is the main issue that you know veterans and families are struggling with. And I was I'd just been in America for about a week, and I was um, visiting and working with a fantastic organisation called the Telling Project. And one of the veterans there, a female veteran, said to me, do you know about moral injury? And just that term sort of excited me, grabbed me. I don't know, I felt something when I heard it. And I, I, I knew nothing about it. And she, she described it to me. And when she did, it suddenly provided a, a way of me understanding all of these stories I'd been hearing, reading about, and you know, sort of watching up until that point. And in essence, moral injury is the concept, a concept that describes um, what happens to someone when their deeply held moral beliefs are violated. So that it's, it is different to a psychological injury. 
Um, you know, PTSD is fundamentally about fear. So it's when people get, you know, part of them is stuck in that fearful place. But moral injury is more about guilt, shame, responsibility. It's more about that essence of what it is to be human and how um, witnessing, perpetrating, this is sort of the official definition of it, or failing to prevent acts which um, violate one's moral beliefs then leads to moral injury. So these personnel would be in their civilian life, good mothers and good fathers, Absolutely. but they might kill a child exactly. as collateral damage. Exactly. And that's a great wound, isn't it? Absolutely. And you know, even you just naming it like that is is something most people in society don't do, isn't it? We we those are the stories that we don't want to hear as as societies and they are, you know, I believe, and my research in America, you know, sort of led me to believe this, that that perhaps they are the real contributing factors to the very high suicide rates in, in veterans, that actually, whereas we previously may have thought it's because people, you know, are very frightened and are traumatised, actually, perhaps it is deeper than that. And there's this term that's used, it was first used by Edward Tick, an American psychotherapist of a soul wound, and he talks about um, moral injury as a, an injury and a wound to the soul. Um, and for me, that is where I think the huge untapped potential of the arts is. That, that actually, I don't know if we can reach the soul through antidepressants, through CBT, but I believe that we can through the arts. But I mean, isn't a moral injury, the concept of it, inevitable? in a fighting force. I mean, under normal circumstances, they wouldn't kill, but they're paid to do that under certain circumstances over there. Are they trained enough to deal with that beforehand, perhaps? Yes. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, and I think what, what a lot of veterans say is that on a, on a rational level, they're able to accept that, you know, that, yes, okay, we knew this is what we were training for. We knew that, for example, taking a life may well be part of of our role, but that on a, an emotional level, um, when they return, that, I that isn't such an easy, uh, I guess, thing to accept. I mean, do you find that perhaps these alpha military types, the no-nonsense men and women, are amenable to theatre, really? Something as sort of touchy-feely as that? Yes. You know, absolutely. In, in the work that I've done and, you know, researched and observed, I haven't, I really haven't seen people describe it as touchy feely. Um, you know, I, for example, one of the one of the projects I've been involved with for five years now is a, is a singing group, a choir where veterans, family members, and community members sing together. And there was one guy who he served in Northern Ireland. He is what you describe the alpha male. He's big. He walks into a room. You know, he's there. And he came for about six months and didn't sing. But he kept coming every week, every week, and he'd sort of sit quietly in the corner, and then gradually he'd moved his chair closer and closer in, and by the end he was singing his heart out with this, you know, the group. So I think there's something really appealing about, I think, you know, going back to your question about that connection, I think it's about camaraderie. It's about, you know, a lot of the veterans who I work with in my non-arts role because I work as a therapist with, through the NHS with veterans too what they describe is a, 
like a bereavement, you know, a real void from that intense camaraderie and closeness that they had in the military. And from some of the arts work that I've witnessed, it it can, in a different way, of course, but it can it can give that really profound sense of camaraderie again. Is it quantifiable, though? I mean, how do you judge whether you're making success of it? For me, the the success is people saying, you know what, I'm able to leave my house now. Um, I'm able to connect with other people. We had one young uh, veteran who served in Afghanistan and Iraq, and he, he came with an older veteran who sort of gradually, gradually got him in the door of the art centre that, that we work at. And he, he came and it was, it was an absolute privilege to watch what happened to him. He, he stayed with the project for a year and um, it ended by performing on stage. He had a fantastic singing voice. He was like the Welsh Johnny Cash. Um, and he, you know, he, he told his story about his mental health struggles and, you know, how he was gradually, gradually feeling alive again. Uh, and he said to us that before he'd come to that first session, he literally had not left his house for two years. He, you know, he said it was like he used a really powerful image. He said he would open the front door and it was as if there was a brick wall there. There wasn't. But to him, that's how it felt. So so for me, that's the measure of success. You know, it's actually someone because and, and he put it down to which I think was really important. He suddenly had something that was more powerful than his fear because he wanted to perform, he wanted to see everybody again each week at the rehearsal, and that kind of purpose became more powerful than the fear that was keeping him stuck in the house. OK, well, let's take you on your travels. I mean, according to the 2014 census, there were 2.6 million UK Armed Forces veterans, but when you travel to America, we're talking about 22 million veterans. That's not just an individual problem, it's a society problem as well, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, and one of the um, one of the statistics that I learned about, which personally I found really shocking, was that um, 22 veterans a day are taking their own lives in America at the moment. Um, and that, yeah, I just found that really horrific, actually, to think about. And also one of the interesting things is that the UK is one of the few countries that doesn't presently record um, suicides by veterans or serving personnel. Um, and I, I just wonder, actually, if we did, what the scale of the problem might be here. Let's get back to the therapy yes. and the dance, <laughs> an unusual thing to use. Yeah. And, you know, you might have thought if these tough people were antipathetic to theatre, mm. multiply that by ten for dance. Mm -hmm. But if you take the example of, was it um, Roman, Roman Bucker? Yes. Um, yeah. He took to it very well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was Roman is is an extraordinary uh, person, and he was a Marine. So I guess you know we might say the toughest of the tough. The hard nuts. Yes, um, but he had a really interesting story in that years before, when he was a child, he had been really interested in ballet and dance, and had you know gone for a while to dance classes and to ballet. But then when he joined the military, um, he parked all of that. And um, he, he told me that when he was in, he served in Iraq, um, he, 
you, he knew that he needed to find a way to make sense of these experiences. And he said that while he was actually there, he didn't feel able to, to I guess, start dancing around the, you know, <laughs> the camp. But he, he drew a lot and he wrote a lot and he, he had this idea that at some point maybe he would go back to dance. Um, and he said that he tested the waters uh, once by going up to his commander um, and he had these photographs with him of when he used to dance when he was younger. And he said to his commander, can I show you something? He said, yes, what is it? Showed him these photos and he said this guy's face was just horrified. He said, I always knew there was something strange about you. <laughs> <laughs> but I so, mean, did you find that something like dance being nonverbal can yes. be as powerful as something where you're actually telling a story? Yeah, absolutely. So I... I was really, I was lucky enough to see a performance that his, so he, when he came back, he founded then, after a few years, um, a, a, a dance company called Exit 12 Dance, who do fantastic work. Um, and I, I saw one of their performances, and just as you said there, the lack of words, I think actually made it even more powerful. Um, so he, he recreates through his dance some actual experiences that he and his colleagues had in Iraq. Um, and he, the way that he describes it is he, he puts them on stage in order to reflect on them and in order to, to invite audiences to investigate these, these issues through dance. Let's, let's look at what you might call more conventional means, words of war. Yes. Um, tell me a bit about that, that project. Yeah, so this is um, creative writing, a, a, a literature programme which started really small with just two writers and then has grown to lots of cities across America and um, they use uh, a whole mixture of some people are writing autobiographically others are using fiction um, but it's um, the emphasis is on developing craft writing skills and lots of the writers have gone on to have published work to win awards you know they've become really established writers um, and one of the their um, events that I attended was in a really sort of uh, you know pretty trendy bar in the middle of New York so you just have you you know you walk in and think oh okay everyone's just having a really nice time in New York and then actually they start reading their extracts from the from their writing and wow we we are now witnessing something really powerful almost like two worlds colliding yeah there. because if it's in a bar then the likelihood is that people have gone there for entertainment yes. and all of a sudden they're getting something perhaps they haven't bargained for yeah and perhaps the people taking part how easy do they feel performing if you like as entertainment while people are having a drink yes um well i guess it is a fine line because it is entertainment in a way isn't it you know i think we have always been entertained by stories of great tragedy horror you know shakespeare writes about what it does to someone to take a life and so yeah i think that that line between being entertained and perhaps educated is 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 yeah, it's interesting. Well, I suppose that Shakespeare thing leads us on very neatly <laughs> to the uh, Feast of Crispian yes. in uh, in New York State, where very definitely they're taking a martial scene out of Shakespeare and using it therapeutically. Yes, yeah. They, they, this is really extraordinary to witness. So they, they work this company of actors who 
some of whom have military backgrounds. I think I'm right there, but but predominantly they are actors, um, and they they work with veterans. So they don't use the the veterans' own stories at all. They use Shakespeare's language. Um, to, and the, their, you know, when you asked earlier what are the success rates, they've been evaluating and monitoring, you know, and people's symptoms reducing. And it's really, really proving very successful. Um, and what, what they describe it as the language allows people to, to channel their emotion and their, their suffering through Shakespeare's iambic pentameter. So it's, yeah. Again, not a question I imagine I would ask is mm. there a danger though that that experience writing a song performing a dance is itself so intense that the morning after or after the performance oh, wow. you slip back that mm. you, you've almost mm. got another extreme that they're yeah. having to deal with that's a really great question actually and yes there is and I think that was something which when we first started working with veterans and families here back in 2012 that we did discover and that we didn't do as well as we have done since because what we didn't anticipate was was exactly that the low after the high um and obviously any performer gets that but usually you have other things you you get carry on with your life uh but yeah that was a real learning point for us and that's the advice I would give to anyone thinking about setting up an arts project with this population that there has to be some really good transitioning out of the project and support and, and support, community which is absolutely. all about in the first place. and hopefully you know my real hope is that the, the the process is a springboard to other things so it isn't that someone is part of a fantastic stand up project for six weeks and then that's it it's like okay what am I going to do next or now I feel confident enough to apply for a job or you know that it that it's it's a transition in itself so if you had to sum up what conclusions you returned home with and how you might put this into practice here what would you say the the real thing I came back with is that this can be done on a national level and that actually what we need now is a is to develop a national framework for trauma and the arts. Um, and actually, I think, although this is slightly different to what they've done in America, what I would be really interested in helping to develop is a, an arts and trauma program which shares learning from the military community and the civilians so that they aren't, while some of the issues are different, so many of them are the same and, and are similar. So, so that's what I think we need. And... You mentioned the old party report. So that statement of intent from the top is Mm. significant. It is. Uh, And there is significant funding now being made available. Um, So, for example, in Wales, uh, one fantastic thing which happened just last year is that all of the health boards now have, for the first time, an arts and health coordinator. You know, know, a full-time person who is working to integrate arts interventions into the NHS. So I think, I, I do feel really hopeful that this, this will develop because ultimately in the long run it could be pretty cost effective because if you have a, a, an arts project which 20 people can participate in, reduce their symptoms of traumatic stress and then be more able to go on and be independent, you know, compared to... I use one-to-one therapy in the NHS. It makes financial sense. 
Alison O'Connor, thank you. And thanks too to Cat Taylor before her. And thanks to you for listening. This has been one in a series of podcasts sharing insights from the Mental Health Fellowships Programme. To find the full body of research produced by all Churchill Fellows, visit the Mental Health Foundation and Winston Churchill Memorial Trust websites. Mm-hmm.